Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And we are back for the fourth creepypasta episode that we have done together. That's a lot of creepypastas. It is. I wasn't sure we were going to we were going to be able to actually squeeze out a fourth one and yet behold, here it is. And honestly, people have asked for this. A lot of people have written in and said how much they like the creepypasta episodes that we've done. Now I'm trying to recall this because I've done this is my third Halloween on the show. Mm-hmm. We've done one for each Halloween, but I think we did one off season maybe as well. I think so. I think the first one was off season and then we came back or maybe the second one Something was. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. So we have if if you're unfamiliar with creepypastas, we will set this all up for you, but this is uh, and, and by the way, it being the fourth doesn't mean that you have to go back and listen to the other three either. Like right. they're not at all connected. Uh, this is just like a fun kind of Halloweenish thing that we've been doing on the show for a while now. Yeah, and it's uh, it's actually rounding out our our Halloween, our month of our month plus of Halloween content uh, because this is airing the Thursday following Halloween 2017. So if you're sitting there at home and you're going, I don't know what a creepy pasta is. This is very weird. I keep, <laughs> you keep saying that word. Okay, here's the real brief visit to it again. Uh, creepypastas are these viral copy and paste texts that are in the form of horror stories. Uh, they evolved from the term copypasta, which mm-hmm. was essentially when people would copy and paste like like made up letters or, or fiction to each other and send them around in chain emails. Right. Or another example of just pure copypasta that I've encountered is, is, is on these uh, various question and answer websites where someone will say, like this is a specific example. Someone's like, "Oh, I have to get a prostate exam tomorrow at the doctor's office. What's going to happen? Should I be concerned?" And then somebody drops some uh, yeah. ultimately like hellacious or scandalous story about what happened to them. And then if you take that that copy and you search for it, you see, "Oh, this exists in various places. This is just uh, like a grab bag bit of text that somebody will uh, distribute as needed to freak people out." Exactly. That's kind of the fun of it is that they take the shape of urban legends. They appear like things that have actually actually happened, right? This is sort of fake news before fake news, right? Yeah. People saying this happened to me on the internet and everybody going, wait, what? And kind of like circling around back and realizing that it's just like for fun. It's like, it's like fake news that became self-aware because, yeah. because now you'll have websites where uh, where creepypasta is curated and even mm-hmm. composed and shared exclusively with the creepypasta community. Yeah, exactly. And so the whole idea here is that they're mimicking these first-person accounts, and the ones that we're usually gravitating towards are the ones that appear to be scientific ones, right? We've usually covered ones in the mm-hmm. past that claim to be uh, scientific laboratory conditions or something like that. Yeah, or, or ones that at least – actually have get, get their roots into you know cognition or, or human behavior or i don't know go a little deeper than just a pure jump scare and, right yeah in fact i you know i only just now remembered this there's a tv show on sci-fi mm-hmm. that is taking uh creepypastas and adapting them into like season length television shows i think they're like five or six episodes i haven't seen it yet but in fact actually last year you and i were interviewed by playboy magazine because they were looking for some 
somebody who knew sort of how to talk about creepypastas yeah. beyond like the websites that they're on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was fun too. So we, we had an opportunity to talk about sort of just like the mechanics of the creepypasta, right? Now, a lot of the pasta, the creepypasta out there is going to be authorless, but you see that changing more and more with the, you know, actual authors contributing their pieces. And then likewise, they, they range in greatly in length. I tend to like the shorter ones. Yeah. Uh, and they also range from things that are just kind of like, hey, this thing happened. Can you believe it? Uh, or sort of Wikipedia style entries to things that are more clearly attempts at a, at, 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 a, at a narrative structure. So the most popular one that those of you out there have probably heard of before and you might not even realize, oh, that's a creepypasta is Slenderman. And we talked a lot about Slenderman in, in the previous episode. So I'm not going to do a lot of deep dive onto that here, but really the genre of of uh, creepypasta seems to have hit its peak somewhere around 2010. It's still chugging along. People are still doing them, making them. In fact, like when I went to go research for this episode, I was shocked at how many more there still were, you know. But I think like the height of it being covered in other media has maybe passed. Yeah, plus I I wonder how it's changing to A, with the the rise of of fake news and, you know, intentionally misleading uh, bits of content that are out there, as well as things that are maybe not quite tied to a, an effort to dis- distort the truth, yeah. but are just tied to get clicks. I'm thinking of those. You know, they'll generally be like a series of four or more, depending how crappy the website is, um, <laughs> little thumbnails at the bottom of the page. And they generally have like mm-hmm. a picture of like something kind of mysteriously fleshy and it, and then some sort of, uh, you know, clickbait headline. I think actually it's, it's fair to point out that sometimes in, on the history of stuff to blow your mind, you may have seen such a thing at the yeah. bottom of our website. That's beyond our control, right? But those ads are sort of placed there by like powers beyond our own. I wonder if there's a potential for a new genre. I guess you could call it, uh, Creep. Uh, let's see. It's, it's clickbait. So what? Cre- creepy bait. I yeah. don't know. Ooh, creepy bait. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You create an entire business around churning out creepy baits <laughs> with like weird little thumbnails that would sit on the bottom of sites, and people click on them and think they're reading a story that's like, "You won't believe these five celebrities who aren't allowed in Hollywood anymore." <laughs> and then, but like, it's actually a horror story. That is a great idea for a business. Let's start that. All right. So in this episode, we have we have each gone out into the wilds of creepypasta and once more brought back a couple of topics to tackle, tease apart, and try and find some stuff to blow your mind content about. You retrieve two from the wilds. I retrieve two. Now, you probably want to touch on the source uh, for your two creepypastas. Yeah, so our last creepypasta, Creepypasta 3, <laughs> if, if you're keeping track, these are like horror movies the way that we're calculating them, uh, was all about something called SCP, which was brought to our attention by several listeners. The SCP Foundation is this collection of scientific creepypastas that's out there. And the idea is it's as if there's this warehouse of oddities that are collected and contained somewhere, kind of like that TV show Warehouse 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guidelines are basically that the articles should have an interesting idea, reasonable containment procedures for the creepypasta, and a clear description with each entry. They operate on a rating system, so the the community actually upvotes and downvotes based on like what their favorite ones are. And both of my suggestions today come from a listener named Austin, who suggested a bunch of SCPs for us right after Creepypasta Three. And they have a bunch. It's it's a very fun website to just browse through and click on things and see just how 
how absurd and or legitimately creepy each entry is because there's a lot of humor on that website which i very much yeah yeah and uh it is you're not wrong there's like thousands now that was the thing that kind of overwhelmed me as i was like how am i going to do this but luckily austin pointed out two great ones that i'm going to work with today so my first is called scp 962 that's its designation but we can call it the Tower of Babel for and, our purposes. And you have to stress how Babel is spelled here. Yeah, B-A-B-B-L-E. Now, uh, I'm going to just summarize this because I think it would take too much time to read the whole thing. But I recommend, like, if you're into this idea, just go to Google and type in SCP-962 and the whole thing will pull up. Um, but the gist of the Tower of Babel in this creepypasta is that there's this large steel tower that has been found by human beings. And it produces these animal-human hybrid servitors that are under its control. They basically come out of the bottom of this thing and they go within a like a short radius of the tower mm-hmm. to recover local resources. And it's implied that these resources are brought back to the tower to help rebuild the tower itself, to do some kind of crazy experiments inside of it, and possibly to create these servitors as well. Uh, they, they're described as being sort of like lycanthrope cyborgs, like they're half animal, half human, but they've got cybernetic implants kind of. And they're, they also outside of the mining and like gathering materials, they also hunt animals. So they'll kill animals and bring back their bodies to the tower, but they will not harm human beings. It's made very clear that, that human beings are in some way, uh, revered by this tower, which may be sentient or there may be something inside the tower that's sentient that's sending all this stuff out. Now, what do they do with the animals they bring back? Well, it's unclear. They maybe make more servitors out of them. And that's mm-hmm. something I'm going to cover in looking at the science here. But also the tower will occasionally release these balloons <laughs> and the balloons will have high quality writings attached to them. And the writings sometimes go a little crazy. <laughs> like sometimes they're they're like little short stories. Sometimes they're poems. Sometimes they're rants. <laughs> and uh, the rants seem to be the ones that like give us a glimpse at the actual personality of the tower. And it seems to worship humanity. And it refers to humanity as the great ones over and over again. Oh, wow. In, in, in your description of all of this, I am picturing it. As an as a Monty Python animation by Terry Gilliam, I yeah. feel like that's probably the the, the purest expression. That of would this be thing. great, actually. Yeah, you know what? It makes me think of Brazil a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the thing that makes the balloons tied into all this resource collection is that the balloons are made out of the skin of animals that are recovered. <laughs> so it's very strange. Um, now I want to look at two things that came out of this for me. The first is animal-human hybrids, which is a favorite topic of ours on the show. We've talked about it before on our X-Files episode. That Joe and I did uh, two X-Files episodes where we, we got into hybrids and chimeras. This was two years ago, maybe. And then, Robert, you and I did an episode all about the myth of the human Z, the human-chimpanzee hybrid. Yeah, well, the myth and then the the actual history there. Mm-hmm. That, one, that was a, a fun episode. And I, if, if I remember correctly, Joe Rogan's favorite episode. Joe Rogan sure. was thrilled about that episode yeah uh it, it, so if you haven't heard that go back and listen to it that's a fun one that's it, it's one of my favorites actually uh now i want to start actually by reading a quote to you okay and 
I'm going to, I'm not going to tell the audience who this quote is from before I, I uh, go ahead and say it. So here we go. A hopeful society has institutions of science and medicine that do not cut ethical corners and that recognize the matchless value of every life. Tonight, I ask you to pass legislation to prohibit the most egregious abuses of medical research, human cloning in all its forms, creating or implanting embryos for experiments, creating human-animal hybrids, and buying, selling, or patenting human embryos. Human life is a gift from our creator, and that gift should never be discarded, devalued, or put up for sale. So who do you think that was? I am going to I'm going to go make a wild guess and say that that was Senator Joe Squirrelman uh, because he's actually a <laughs> he's human act- hybrid. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't want his uh, genetic data to be sold. It was actually former President George W. Bush huh. from his State of the Union in 2006. Oh wow. And as uh, some of our listeners know, I have my master's degree in presidential rhetoric and I was watching the State of the Union at the time. I love watching State of the Unions. They're it's kind of a weird like they're my my uh, Super Bowl, basically. <laughs> and uh, I was watching it and I went, wait a minute. Like I did like a double take. and was like, did he say human animal hybrids? Like, it, has he gone so far off the deep end that he thinks like werewolves are a thing? You know, I was really like, where did this come from? You know, and it turns out that this was actually an issue at the time, like in scientific experimentation that was kind of rearing its head up. And so mm-hmm. I think Bush, like from an his ethical standpoint was trying to tackle it. But actually, this is when I became aware that experiments to create human-animal chimeras are ineligible for public funding here in the United States. So you you cannot the, – the government will not help pay for anything that's even semi-related to that. Yeah. Now, of course, it's 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 worth driving home that – that the the actual experiments that are not being funded in these cases are, are not experiments to create humanities or to create no. some sort of a mutant pig person that will uh, you know labor in the mines. Uh, they're far more realistic and applicable uh, uh, areas here. Mm-hmm. Uh, like one of the ones that instantly comes to mind, uh, and I believe we've discussed this one in the past on the show, is what if you could use a pig to grow human organs within it for organ transplants? To humans or any other kind of like tissue or organ growth. If you could grow it in an animal or on an animal, that would make the whole process easier, right? Yes. In fact, that is exactly what I'm going to talk about here today uh, because I imagined one of the tower servitors as being pig-like because in the description <laughs> of the creepypasta, it specifically said that the the way that they're sculpted is to try to make them look more human even though they have animal hybrid features. And it said that like if it has a snout, which I immediately thought of a pig, uh-huh. that the snout would be like cut off. So it's very strange. But so I immediately went to pig and not for any old reason, but pig human hybrids are a thing that have been being worked on for a while. And in fact, this year, since our human Z episode, actually, there's been some further research on this. So um, just a reminder, I, I mentioned the human Z episode earlier. Specifically, what we talked about there were something that were called the Red Frankenstein experiments. And the guy to look up there is Ilya Ivanovich Ivanov. He was the one who was trying to create a human chimpanzee hybrid. We go all into it in that episode. But if you want to go and look up on your own, you know, check out his name. I'll make sure I link to that episode on the landing page for this one, as well as uh, all previous Creepypasta episodes. Yes. So, okay. Obviously, 
outside of George W. Bush's State of the Union speech in 2006, there is a lot of fear and paranoia around the possibility of a animal-human hybrid, right? It just kind of squicks people out. Whenever they even think of the idea, it make, it upsets people, which is probably why it's kind of a common trope in horror. Yeah. Now, in 1997, developmental biologist Stuart Newman was at the New York Medical College in Valhalla, and this is together with Jeremy Rifkin, who's the president of the Foundation of Economic Trends in D.C., and they submitted a patent for the chimera of a human Z, and they made this from embryonic cells of humans and chimpanzees. Uh, so Stuart, he vowed to secure the patent so he could prevent others from ever making a human Z and exploiting it. This is how much it freaks people out. Like mm. they, they actually tried to patent this so they could make sure that no one else could ever try to make something like this. Uh, and so he was actually denied this in 2004 by the Patent and Trademark Office. Why? Well, it gets back to something that George W. Bush was talking about in that speech. It's important to remember the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office actually rejects claims of hybrid patents because they would too closely resemble humans, and you can't huh. patent humanity. You can sell it, you can exploit it, but but just no patent. Right. Yeah. Well, it always cracks me up, like when um, companies refer to like human collateral or mm-hmm. like human human resources, like they're talking about human beings as if they're objects, right? Or like oh, yeah. like pens that they order from Staples or something. Yeah. If if any uh, word or phrase sounds like it should come from a, a pig mutant and a giant power, <laughs> it's human resources, <laughs> right. it, along with all those other wonderful words like uh, headcount reduction and and so forth. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Like the Basically, like the the sanitization of like companies doing quote bad things to yeah. people, right? So actually, hybridization is quite common in nature, right? We've all heard of zebra variations, like uh, zebras mixed with any other equus genus species, like zonkeys or hebras or donkras, right? Like that was a huge <laughs> thing after Napoleon Dynamite, where it, the, everybody thought how cute it was to combine different names of animals, but that's a real thing. Uh, in fact, this is when two equine species mate, but because they're compatible enough to breed, they can actually mate, but unfortunately their offspring are usually sterile. So this is when we get mules, for instance. Yeah, and in the worst cases, uh, for instance, uh, it brings to mind African and Asian elephants. There have been cases where they have bred in captivity, and uh, the results are, if, if they do produce offspring, it's generally uh, quite frail and sickly and does not yeah. survive. Yeah, that seems to be the case with some of these as well. We also see big cat hybrids that are common. So you've got tigons, ligers, jag lion, jagupars, the, the, all the combinations, right? In rare cases, actually, tigons are different from other hybrid progeny. They can actually produce babies. Uh, and there is a small industry that goes around breeding domestic cats with wild relatives to produce like weird exotic hybrids right so like i've never seen one of these before but i'm guessing like if you're super rich you're like i want to breed my tortoise shell cat with a lynx or something and you get you get like this bizarre cat for your house huh i mean yeah my world is just when you run out of cat then the cat person you know the cat lady in your social circle gives you provides you a new one. Oh yes yeah. oh yeah they just seem to show up on my doorstep <laughs> that's how it works for me uh also bottlenose dolphins and false killer whales can breed these are called holfins 
Huh. Walfins. Uh, as, and so that's another hybrid that we can note here. Almost all of these are infertile. Subsequently, the whole thing, they're doomed to an evolutionary dead end. They just, they can't continue breeding. There's even some speculation that human beings once crossbred with Neanderthals. So that's worth remembering as well. So, okay. Robert mentioned the pig hybrid and the idea of using them for organ transplantation. This first came about in 2003 when Chinese scientists at the Shanghai Second Medical University fused human cells with rabbit eggs. And this was reportedly the first human-animal chimera. Then in 2004, researchers at the Mayo Clinic created pigs with human blood flowing in their bodies. And this is the stuff that kind of led to that George W. Bush section in the State of the Union, right? These research uh, moments popping up, but also stem cell research becoming like a lot bigger and more public. Yeah, I mean, it is weird to imagine that, right? To think of this pig that has been engineered to have human blood in it for the purposes of blood donation. And, yeah. And, you know, the, the ramifications are not necessarily attractive there. I mean, if you're if, if you're against, say, the eating of animals, uh, the, the, the raising of pigs for food, yeah. then... You know, how are you supposed to feel about rearing pigs just so you can drain their blood and, and sell it? Yeah, it's uh, for me, it's an ethical thing around, along the lines of we were just talking about in our optography episode about the experiment where they're running alum solution through a dog's eyeball while it was still alive right. to see if optography was real. Right. Like that is upsetting to me. But I'm also a vegetarian and, and that's kind of part of just my ethical standpoint, yeah. right? Whereas I can totally understand why some people would be like – and in fact, I've got data here to talk about this. Every day, 22 people die because they can't get the organ they need, right? So I can completely understand the concept of saying, well, it's actually worth it to us to grow these pigs with human organs inside of them so that we can harvest those organs and save some of those 22 people every day. Yeah, ultimately you look at it as the choice, right? Okay, either we're going to go ahead with with pigs that have human blood and human organs or you guys get more organized and more committed uh, to uh, attending blood drives and donating your body yeah. uh, when you die and having everything set up so that that we don't have to rely on the hybrids. Yeah. Do you remember that movie, The Island, that came out a couple of years ago? Oh, yeah. It, this was basically the premise there, except for it was even more horrifying because they were clones of actual people that were raised to maturity so that those people would have exact duplicates of their organs on hand. Yeah, it was essentially a remake of uh, Clona. Uh, what? No. Yeah. Parts, the Clonus Har, or is it Clonus the Parts Har? I've never One seen it. It was an old uh, mystery science theater film. Uh, it, it had Peter Graves in it. Okay. It was, it's not bad actually. It's very watchable, but it's essentially yeah. the same plot. Yeah. Uh, Never Let Me Go. Yes. Uh, also. That's right. Entails a similar plot, but so, with a lot it, more intelligence applied it's to It's a little it. less, uh, um, Michael Bay. Yeah, considerably less. <laughs> There's less explosions in Never Let Me Go. Mm-hmm. I've read the book. I've not seen the movie. Yeah. So, okay. Here's the thing. Earlier this year in 2017, scientists announced that they had created the first successful animal-human hybrid. How? They merged human cells into pigs. So technically, actually, what they created was a chimera and not a hybrid, but those two terms get conflated. But basically, a chimera is an organism that contains cells from two different species. The reason why they did it was just what we were talking about right there, to help grow donor donor organs. Uh, So this is an international team. It was led by the Salk Institute in California, and they reported their findings in the journal 
sell. Their research was funded by private donors. Why? Well, I'll remind you, the United States will not provide any public funding for research like this. So how do you make a chimera, right? If you've got your little chemistry set at home and you want to make a chimera, you probably can't. But I'll give yeah, you do not a, attempt. <laughs> I'll give you a quick description. The first and riskiest way to do so is to literally introduce the organs of one animal into another. So it'd be like uh, that Christian Slater movie where he has a monkey heart. What? Right? What movie's this? I, I can't remember what that movie's called, but there's a movie where, uh, like, it's a romantic. Uh, teen drama and he has like a huge scar over his chest and he tells everybody that he's got a, a monkey's heart oh, in his body. Oh, okay. Yeah, I vaguely remember the the trailer. He's like a bad boy too, right? He's always a yeah. bad boy, of course. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> the host's immune system in this case, let's let's say it's Christian Slater, will usually reject these other animal organs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that idea seems a little far-fetched. But the second way to make a chimera is to start at the embryonic level and introduce one animal's cells into the embryo of another and then let them grow into a hybrid. So this followed a another Salk study that was funded and conducted on mice and rats. And what they did, they used the genome editing tool CRISPR, which comes up a lot, uh, both on our show, but also just kind of in science communication in general. It's a hot topic right now. Uh, with CRISPR, they were able to delete the genes that mice need to grow certain organs. And then they could use those mice as hosts to grow healthy pancreatic tissue for rats. Uh, this allowed those organs to flourish inside the mice bodies. The next step is essentially to inject rat stem cells into pigs. Now, they did this, but that failed because those animals have different gestation times. So rats and mice are kind of closer together. Pigs are surprisingly closer to humans, actually. Uh, this surprised me. So their organs is, are a little more similar, so that's why they're working with pigs here. They introduced three different types of human cells into pigs, and they found that with just the right timing, they could get those resulting embryos to survive. Once they put these embryos in adult pigs, they survived for three to four weeks, and then the researchers removed them for analysis. So to be clear here, there's only actually a low percentage of these embryos that survived, and the human tissue within seems to grow slower than they expected. So any organs that are grown would probably be rejected by humans because they have too much pig tissue in them. So the next step that this research team is is looking to figure out is if they can increase the number of human cells inside these embryos. And this could take years before they get to any kind of point where they're growing functional human organs. And in all of this, you have to, I guess you have to think like, what's the, what's the line? Like at what point is there too much human in there? At what point are you making some sort of a humanoid a uh, drone creature that maybe has you know has no brain but just sits there and grows organs and and how are we supposed to feel about that? Well, right, yeah. There's there's a lot of ethical implications involved here, and to I really want to point out here too, what they're doing is not tantamount to making animal human people. Right. Like you will often see if you Google uh, animal human hybrid and you see legit articles about this pig study, they will use these crazy photos that have either been photoshopped or like are some kind of uh, puppets or something that are designed to look like horror movie monster, half mm-hmm. pig, half people. Uh, and that's not the case of what's going on here. I think a lot of uh, a lot of the revulsion uh, that that occurs with this topic is it basically comes down to this uh, type these this type of science 
forces you to reexamine what we are. Yeah. And if you have a if you have a certain you know idea of what a human is and what it means to be human, uh, that's maybe a little bit divorced from like the, the scientific genetic realities of everything, uh, then yeah, this can be a bit of a shock. Whereas the scientists involved would probably just tell you, yeah, yeah, this is what we are. This is what it is to be a human. Yeah. And this is what we've lined up to help those humans live longer. I think you could end up seeing it two way, like break off in two different ways, right? There'll be like, um, like biological conservatives who, you know, really want to maintain, like, like those guys who purposely try to file the patent to make sure that nobody could ever make it, right? Mm -hmm. But then you would have, I guess transhumanists who are people who are like, hey, what could we learn from this science? How could we augment our bodies? How could we become the next step in evolution, right? Yeah. And, and really, honestly, the first thing there is that they're just looking for a way to help people live, you know, when their mm -hmm. organs are failing. Uh, I don't think anybody yet – well, you know, I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the DOD is up to this and we just don't know. But I don't think anybody's like trying to make werewolf soldiers right now or anything, you know? Yeah, they're too unpredictable. But – Okay, let's take what we just learned and try to apply it to this creepypasta, okay? This is, remember, we're talking about SCP-962. The way the creepypasta is written, it's easy to assume that that tower is somehow just Frankensteining together human and animal parts. But because its message has this reverence towards human and the fact that the servitors don't ever attack people, it actually makes me think it's doing something else to create these, like, hybrid monsters. It sounds like they are creating or the, the, the tower is creating human-animal chimeras from embryos. And possibly it's using the cells of the animals that are brought back inside to it, right? So but that begs the question of where is it getting the human cells from? Right. So I don't know quite the answer to that, but that's also why this is spooky. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what's inside that tower, everybody. Yeah. Okay, one more thing I want to cover real quick is – how do you think the tower is controlling these servitors, right? Like there's some kind of mind control effect over these like half human, half animal cyborgs basically, right? Now we've covered many, many, many times on the show before how animals can be mind controlled by other animals, usually by parasites, right? I can, gosh, how many do you think? 20 episodes, maybe more? Uh, probably because you have – because you have different levels, right? You, yeah. Anytime we're talking about some sort of disease or infectious uh, agent, it's going to come up, and then you're going to have endoparasites. Uh, so those are going to be going to be like your two main categories, and that's not even getting into like the uh, some of the the, the more sci-fi ideas of computer human brain interfaces or just psychological manipulation. Well, I've got all that here. So Excellent. that's exciting. Yeah. Uh it, so some of these are examples that have been covered before. Others I, I just want to give you like a grab bag in case you've never heard any of our episodes on parasite mind control. So parasitic wasp larvae, they can control caterpillars by releasing octopamine into their systems. Oh yeah, the, the parasitic wasp world is, is filled with wonderful examples of uh, of various hosts that are hijacked, not only like bodily, but also their their behavior is hijacked. Yeah, in fact, the jewel wasp is another example. They can control cockroaches. This is nuts. They can control cockroaches by stinging their brains, and that impairs their ability to move. And then they literally guide the cockroaches by their antenna back to their nest, the wasp's nest, where the cockroach becomes host to all the wasp's larvae. So they, like, oh, wow. ride cockroaches, kind of like a Moadib rides a sandworm. Oh, wow. that That's incredible. Yeah. I don't think I'd run across the, the jewel wasp example before. There, there's one with a ladybug that's amazing because the, the, it's, it's basically 
alien, except if the host remained alive after the emergence yeah. of the xenomorph and had to partially raise it and look after this it. This is similar. Yeah. yeah, this is similar. Uh, there's also the protozoan Toxoplasma gondii. Uh, yes. uh, they use rats as vehicles to get into cat intestines. This is because their oocysts can form in inside cat feces. Uh, we've talked about this before, but a lot of people probably know about this. It causes the rats to lose their fear of cat urine, and they may be doing it by affecting the neurotransmitters and dopamine levels inside the rat brains. Now, because toxoplasma can cross the blood-brain barrier inside mammals, they can actually infect us, human beings, and they've infected 2 billion people worldwide. Three dozen studies have found a positive link between toxoplasma infection and human neurological disorders like schizophrenia. Yeah, if you ever want to feel extra weird about scooping out the litter box, uh, I highly recommend looking into some of this research. There have been, to your point, a number of studies over the years. There are a lot of great articles out there uh, that touch on just uh, to, to what degree uh, this parasite hijacks the, the, the brain of its hosts. I mean, everybody but the cats, really. The, the cats remain untouched. Uh, it's just everything <laughs> around the cats that end up being manipulated. It's funny because uh, after I was doing this research, I was like, in, uh, the bathroom adjacent to my office has one of our cat litter pans in it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, yeah, I need to go clean that. But it was like <laughs> I, I had to like wrap like rags around my face before I did it. Like all of a sudden I was afraid of cleaning the litter box. <laughs> uh there's also small crustaceans that are known as gamerids, and these can be infected by a number of different parasites. Apparently, like, they're just, they're awesome hosts for parasite, parasites. So, you've got trematodes in their brains, sometimes worms form in their body cavities. Each one of these parasites, uh, just induces different behaviors in these crustaceans. Some make them head toward light, others make them head away from deep water. And then this is my favorite slash most horrifying one. Robert did an entire video about this one. Oh, yeah. And if it's on stuff to blow your mind.com, it will make your skin crawl. It's super upsetting. This is the hairworm. And hairworms are known to infect frogs, fish, snails, and crickets. And in the case of crickets, they need to be brought near water so that the hairworm's larvae can develop. So what they do is these parasites make proteins that attract the cricket hosts to light, which is usually where the water is at night. So these crickets end up basically committing suicide and dive bombing into the water, which they normally wouldn't do. So these hairworms can reproduce. Yeah, this is I, I love this particular organism um, and, and really great. Really enjoyed putting that video together a while back. But uh, my first encounter with it was in a junior high band class. Right. You've seen one. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I've encountered I've encountered one. I've encountered one in a puddle once uh, out in the wild. But this was in a, a junior high band room and there was a cricket hopping around on the floor. Oh. And the, uh, the, the the student next to me decided that she was just going to stomp it, Ooh. you know, which which I don't agree with. Crickets not hurting anybody. Yeah. They don't hurt the cricket, yeah. um, you know, folklore and superstitions aside. But she, she, but it served her right because the, the second she stomped that thing, she, you know, it's sitting there dead and then the horsehair worm starts crawling out of the cricket Ugh. and it just totally, uh, grossed her out. Like she just, she had to, I think she had to move, uh, to a different chair. Yeah. If you've never seen one of these things before, it's like something out of a body horror movie. Yeah. They're, they look, they literally look like hair to us because they're so small, but it's like, imagine if like just this tendril 
punched in through your body and bore into you and started driving you around. That's kind of what it's like. Yeah, yeah. The revulsion uh, element aside, the, the degree to which they manipulate host behavior is just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 fascinating. Definitely go check out that video if you're interested in more. But there are a lot of examples, is my point, of parasites hijacking their hosts. And they tend to be neurological, usually with proteins being expressed inside the brains of the infected. So Maybe this is a possibility. Maybe there's something going on in the tower where they're manipulating the proteins of the of the brains of these animal-human hybrids that they're creating. Or maybe it's electronic. And I think this is more likely given the description of the creepypasta. So, for instance, in 2013, researchers at Harvard University created the first non-invasive brain-to-brain interface between a human and a rat. And that allowed the human being to control the rat's tail. The way that this works is a human wears an EEG device. The mouse is equipped with an ultrasound computer-to-brain interface. And I want to make it clear, this isn't invasive. None of their brains are cut open and with, like, electrodes inside them or anything. You don't have to cut their heads open. It works when the human looks at a specific pattern on a screen, and that pattern triggers the ultrasound beam into the rat's motor cortex in the region that deals with its tail movement. In this study, it had 94% accuracy, just a human being sitting on the other side of the room being able to control when a rat uh, moved its tail. This does not mean that we can read minds or anything like that. We Simply, we just don't know how thoughts are encoded by neurons in the brain. But it does allow us to stimulate a region of the brain that is known to create a particular reaction. So another example of this comes from Korea. Uh, at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, researchers have developed a way to remote control turtles. Uh, now, this is a, a little bit more what might be going on here with this creepypasta. Similar to the human-mouse interface, it guides the turtle through what's called a cyborg system, where the human sends, again, EEG signals by thought command, and those activate a device that's on the turtle, and the device obstructs the turtle's view. They can essentially give it three instructions, turn left, turn right, or be idle. And uh, what's interesting about this is they use turtles because turtles have decent cognitive abilities. They have the ability to distinguish different wavelengths of light, and they can recognize a light source and move toward it. So they're really more predictable than other animals when it comes to their movement patterns. Plus, they respond well to mutagen. We know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the idea here is like once you perfect the turtle cyborg, then you can perfect the teenage mutant ninja turtle cyborg. It's the next logical step. Yeah, exactly, which is essentially what SCP-962 is doing here, right? Right. The creepypasta specifically states the following. I'm going to read this to you from the description that the servitors are, quote, cybernetically augmented animals. These augmentations usually force the animals into a bipedal gait and are often accompanied by crude cosmetic alterations, such as the removal of a snout, with the apparent goal of making the servitor appear more human-like. The nervous system of members of SCP-962-1 is slave to implanted electrodes, which allow them to be controlled by a central 
source. And that is assumed to be the tower itself, like that the tower is sentient. So this definitely sounds to me like these hybrids are augmented with cybernetics that allow a BCI to CBI transfer of some kind of remote control through implanted electrodes. So what I want to know is this. If you captured one of these servitors and then you dismantled all the electronic stuff that's like plugged into them, what would happen? Like how would they behave? Would they even know how to behave? Would they go out into the world and fetch uh, new animal tissue for the construction of balloons? Or would they possibly turn against the tower and start attacking humans? Hmm. So this is an interesting direction to take. I also want to introduce another scary question before we take a break and we move on to more creepypastas. So we've established that we are creating hybrids. We've also established that there are lots of ways to mind control sentient beings. Now, what about if those hybrid organs could potentially make human beings more vulnerable to parasitic hijacking? So, for instance, if I got a pig human organ put in my body because I need a new liver, right? But there's something about that organ. Obviously, the way that those organs are harvested, they're all, quote unquote, human. But could they lead to something else that would make me more vulnerable to a parasitic uh, mind control thing like a wasp or or uh, toxoplasmosis. And then what if the intelligent parasites are the, yeah, the ones carrying out this whole scheme? Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. Super scary stuff here. I really like this tower one. So, so thanks again uh, for passing this along, Alex. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we come back more creepypasta. All right. We're back. Okay. So the the first of the two creepypastas that I turn to, uh, this one is kind of pre-pasta urban legend in okay. respects. Uh, but it continues to resonate through the now-established world of creepypasta. Uh, it's um, – and, and I, I love, too, how it's uh, – there are elements of intentional um, – Manipulation of an audience here as well. So this this one is known as Polybius, and uh, this concerns uh, essentially it's like a haunted video game uh, situation. I imagine a number of you out there are familiar with this one already. I think there's a stuff they don't want you to know video about this uh, urban legend. As oh, well. okay, okay. So the idea here is that there was a 1981 arcade game called Polybius, presumably named for the Greek historian who championed the importance of historians uh, having a first-hand account of what happened. Uh, it's kind of a wink to the fact that this is all made up. Okay. Uh, the version I read indicated that you had a few machines that were produced by a mysterious German company with a kind of fake-sounding name and installed in Portland-area arcades. This uh, They resulted in a host of player symptoms, uh, nightmares, hallucinations, migraines, addictive behavior, all of this occurring with any individual who, who played the game. And then uh, and, and while this is going on, there are like mysterious men in black coming in and checking on the machines, perhaps getting some data out of them. Huh. And then uh, all of a sudden the machines vanish overnight and people are just left to whisper about what was the deal with uh, the Polybius machines? Was it part of a government program yeah. to test, uh, you know, adolescent minds? Was it something more nefarious? Was it an accident that then the government got interested in? It's a pretty 
it's a pretty cool idea. It's kind of Tron, but better than, yeah. than like the Tron Legacy uh, sequel. Yeah. It, and uh, as you know, we both love the Tron Legacy sequel. We've talked about it on the show before, but this sounds like a great hook. Yeah. I mean, it also reminds one of another film uh, from the, the Tron-ish era, that same sort of genre of, of, of let's make a film about a crazy video game, and that being The Last Starfighter. Totally. Yeah. Uh, that was exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. where uh, it, It's been a long time since I've seen it. I loved it as a kid. Yeah. But the arcade machine is like a recruitment device for an alien civilization. Yeah, if I remember correctly, like the way it works is if you get the highest score on there, then this uh, like alien armada comes to Earth and recruits you because they're like, oh, you are so good at this video game that you're actually going to be like an amazing pilot in the war. <laughs> yeah, it was a fun flick. I may have to check it out again someday. But uh, this urban legend led to uh, uh, concerning uh, Polybius led to a string of video games that adapted the Polybius uh, title. And there was even a Simpsons reference in, I believe, 2006 thereabouts. Now, investigations into the uh, any reality behind Polybius, it, it tends to point towards 2001 as the starting point. And it was probably created by a guy named, by the name of Kurt Kohler uh, as an intentional effort to drive traffic to coinop.org. Uh, this according to Stuart Brown, uh, the man behind the Ahoy video series who looked into it. So I also read uh, where uh, skeptic Brian uh, Dunning uh, believes that the roots of the pre-pasta-pasta here probably emerged from distortions of real-life complications uh, surrounding video games, uh, particularly uh, apparently when Tempest first came out. This was the you know the the Atari game. Uh, there were some cases of uh, quote unquote video game related illnesses associated with it, uh, and then uh, there were some accounts of uh, video game related illnesses that popped up in the Portland area around 1981, and in 1982 we had the first video game known to have coincided with the death of a player. Coincided, not, you know, caused the death. Yeah. But uh, there was a, the heart attack death of 18-year-old Peter Bukowski in Kalmut City, Illinois. This uh, reminds me of something we talked about recently on the show. I can't remember what episode it came mm-hmm. up in, but the Pokemon panic in Japan and how uh, that was deemed to be like a moment of mass hysteria. So I wonder if that's possibly what the what caused this legend. It could be because the, the other side here is you have this technology that's suddenly everywhere and it involves the children. Yeah. Uh, you have news accounts of, uh, of some of these... Uh, of, you know, incidents taking place. And then down the line, it's easy to wrap this all up in an attractive uh, urban legend. Perhaps uh, in the case of Polybius taking existing urban legends and just simply tying them up in a nice bow, which is something you see with a lot of, of actual creepypasta. It, because it's easy to see why all of this is compelling, right? Because video games, they do enact a strange power over the players in many cases. You know, they give us this flow state. Uh, you're, you're generally dropped into a very limited world of fixed and often black and white objectives. Uh, and there's sometimes there's even like a, 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 the game itself is telling you what to do. Either either you're on the rails or there's in some cases there's a voice in your head telling you this is what we're doing now. Go do it. Achieve the objective. Here's your here's your reward in video game coins. Right. So. Uh, on top of that, of course, I think uh, most of us are probably familiar with some of the symptoms that occasionally pop up from excessive video game playing or video game addiction. So it might be, say, strange blisters on your uh, on your bum from sitting in an odd, uh, <laughs> odd position, a headache, eye strain, neck and back pain, digestive problems, sleep problems, sadness, drowsiness, even uh, palpitations. 
And this kind of thing happens. I've also seen some of these same symptoms line up with just, say, excessive computer use, mm-hmm. uh, you know, too much time s- uh, sitting at a computer for a, for a job. Or, uh, you know, I, I've, I've known people who ended up, like, screwing up their back a little bit from being in the same position while researching, reading a book or something. Yeah, no, this is definitely something. Um, so I am a recovering World of Warcraft addict. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. And yeah. so I definitely am familiar with all of these symptoms because I would, like, play for, like, 12 hours straight with my friends like almost all through the night uh and it was not good those were not good <laughs> days for me uh but but also like sometimes when i'm working during the day for instance on this episode i'll sit there and i'll just be so into the research and typing everything up and, and reading and reading and typing and typing and i realize i haven't gotten up for a while yeah. you know and so i i actually tried to make it a point to get up once an hour and go outside and like you know let my eyes adjust to like natural light yeah. for a minute you know yeah you don't and also, you don't want to get those research ankles or no, those uh, research uh, blisters. That's yeah. going to be, yeah, when you and I are old men, they're going to discover like all kinds <laughs> of new ailments of, of what happens when you sit there and do research for too long. Now, I, I think one of the more fascinating interactions, though, between computers and computer games and human health is one that seems very key to the Polybius creepypasta here, and that is photosensitive epilepsy. Ah, yeah, which is actually also connected to that Pokemon example that I brought up. Okay, go ahead. So people with uh, photosensitive epilepsy, they experience seizures, and seizures, of course, can involve, you know, uh, know, muscles tensing up, a loss of consciousness, um, loosening of the bladder, and other other, uh, physical conditions. And it can generally be just a quite, you know, a stressful and frightening experience. Mm. But uh, people with photosensitive epilepsy, they can experience these seizures when exposed to flashing lights or bold, contrasting visual patterns, overexposure to a video game. Um, it's, a, it's a brain disorder that's caused by abnormal electrical activity in the brain, perhaps due to irregular neural wiring or uh, neurotransmitter imbalance. And it's genetically linked. So about one in a 100 U.S. citizens have epilepsy. Out of those, only 3 to 5% have photosensitive epilepsy. And it's also more likely to affect people ages 7 through 19, with males exhibiting a stronger tendency overall. But this might, might just be due to the uh, the populations in which, uh, in which they were looking and the time frame in which they were looking, in which the, the males are more likely to be playing a bunch of video games. I was going to say that is like your target demo for – well, it used to be your yeah. target demo for, for video games. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure to what extent that's changed, especially since – I mean, used to, if you were staring at a screen all the time, you were probably either watching TV or playing video games. Mm-hmm. Obviously, now everyone's looking at screens all the time. This is true. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. I think that to myself often like – after a full day of research, I'm like, what do I want to do? Well, I could sit down and watch TV or I could play a video game. Well, those are both looking at a screen again. Mm-hmm. And now even like if I want to read comics or read a book, yeah, I read them like, all oh, digitally. That's a different – that's another screen I've got yeah, to look at. Yeah, I have so many screens to look at. That's one of the reasons I like the the Kindle I have because it's – it's yes, it's screen, but at least it's that – it doesn't have a glow to it. My Kindle's know? the same, yeah. But occasionally I, – actually, I did this just yesterday. I was like after a long day of just looking at screens, I was like I'm going to just take a magazine into the bathtub. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect way to relax. 
All right. So given the, the triggers of pulsating lights here with uh, photo, photosensitive epilepsy, it's easy to think of it as a, just a collision between human brains and our modern world of discos and video games, right? But the earliest possible case of this goes back to ancient Greece, where we have reports of an epileptic who would go into seizures if a potter wheel was rotated in front of his eyes. Interesting. Okay. Because you, you don't have necessarily have flashing lights, but if you have light behind it and you yeah. have the, the, this pattern occurring. Yep. Like it's a it's a pattern of contrasting light. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even this, uh, you have to point out from an evolutionary standpoint, it's still kind of an invention of the modern world. We're talking about the wheel here, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's something certainly we've had for a while, but have, we haven't had it long enough to really impact uh, human evolution. And even uh, you'll find encounters where color can stimulate photosensitive epilepsy, generally reds and blues, and these are colors that are not the most common. In the natural world, I mean, aside from the sky, which yeah. many argue is not truly blue, I mean, how much pure blue do you encounter in nature? How much pure red? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, some flowers for sure, but you're right that they would be like a lower percentage. Like if you were going to do like a color swatch palette of yeah. like your walk through the woods, they would be far smaller than all the greens and browns and earth tones. Yeah, and they would ultimately be easy to avoid and would not have an impact on evolutionary biology. Yeah. But I have to point out the same thing goes for a lot of the stimu- specific stimuli that uh, people with photosensitive epilepsy encounter. Like in, in many cases, it's something specific enough that they can readily avoid it. And then on top of that, they're anti-epileptic medications that are mm-hmm. taken as well. Uh, and then also uh, we mentioned the age range. Like as people get older, it seems like they're in many cases less susceptible to this. Uh, however, uh, there is a, a case worth mentioning, and we've uh, I believe we've touched on this on the podcast before, and that is the recent case of Newsweek senior editor Kurt Eichenwald, uh, who was uh, attacked on Twitter. The incident here is that uh, s- uh, another Twitter user – Disagreed with some of uh, Kurt's uh, you know, political tweets, okay. and and knowing that uh, he ha- had photosensitive epilepsy, tweeted a flashing GIF at him, which what? resulted in a seizure. Really? Yeah. So it's um, Ugh. it's a it's a revolting case, but I, illuminating in light of everything we've talked about and about these triggers and the ramifications of these triggers in an increasingly technological world. Okay, I'm going to have to go back and listen to our episode about why is social media making us crazy, and then we'll be right back. Yeah. Okay, I listened to it. All right. (laughs) Are we ready to move on? Yeah, yeah, that's basically Polybius here, the video game that allegedly drives one insane uh, or or causes some sort of health problems. But, of course, we have plenty of examples of video games that that can cause at least certain members of the population – Various health health problems. Isn't Polybius also the name of a Michael Shea short story? Ooh, yeah, I believe it is. Uh, it's a science fiction. Uh, that's the name of his science fi- uh, one of his short fiction collections. Yeah, yeah. When I first saw this, I thought that's what it was because you let me borrow that mm-hmm. book. Um, cool. That's a neat little tie-in just for for fun for us and yeah. maybe for other people out there who are Michael Shea fans. We're we're big Michael Shea nerds here. All right. Well, let's let's hit another one then before we take a break. You have uh, you you have another specimen uh, from the SCP. Yeah, this is SCP six eighty two, also known as the hard to destroy reptile. <laughs> I, and actually, linking it to Michael Shea, this seems like the kind of thing Michael Shea would come up with in his work. It's like it's a straight up monster, but is like this scientifically fascinating monster when you kind of. 
uh, apply real world biology to it. Yeah, M- Michael Shea loved biology. Uh, I mean, it's evident in his work. So many stories involve some sort of unique uh, monster biology that's clearly patterned after, say, parasitic wasps for the behavior of spiders, etc. Yeah. So in this instance, again, I'm just summarizing here rather than reading you the whole creepypasta. This is an intelligent reptile and it hates all life forms. <laughs> it goes into a rage state anytime it's spoken to. And it has the following superpowers. It can regenerate by consuming any type of matter, whether inorganic or organic. And its digestion seems to be aided by gills that are inside its nostrils that can remove any usable matter from a liquid solution. So subsequently, it can't be killed. It has super high strength, speed, and reflexes. I wrote here, essentially we're talking about Wolverine, right? Like yeah. this is, this is a classic Hugh Jackman, Logan Wolverine type stuff. The lizard here, though, it can keep moving and speaking even if 87% of its body has been destroyed. So this is like this fearsome monster and creepypasta lore. And basically they say like you have to contain this thing in like a pool of hydrochloric acid at all times and it'll like continually be regenerating, but at least it'll be like so constantly disabled that you can contain it that way. And I love that it's just a rage lizard. It's just an yeah. enraged uh, uh, lizard that hates humanity. If you actually go to the Creepypasta page for this, again, it's SCP-682. There's demonstrations of some of the dialogue with this creature <laughs> that shows just how much it hates everything. Uh, now, of course, this made me think of reptile regeneration. And so I wanted to look into that and see, like, just how possible would reptile regeneration be at this level, okay? So we've all heard stories about lizards that regrow limbs or they regrow their tails. In fact, regeneration is mostly common in invertebrates like worms and insects. Crustaceans and insects can actually spontaneously lose and replace their body parts in a process that's called autotomy. But sponges and starfish, we also know they can replace and repair their limbs. Starfish can even regenerate into a new animal sometimes. And we've discussed this on the show before, another one of my favorites. We're revisiting a lot of greatest hits today. Yeah. The hydra uh, is such an amazing little animal. It can tear open its own flesh to create these mouths that they then shove their prey into before they heal back over their flesh. Yeah, the footage of this of the, of this phenomenon is wonderful because it's it's like something that's it's pure Lovecraft because the the rip just gets wider and wider yeah. until the mouth is larger than the hydra was. Yeah, and you feel like yeah. it's just going to swallow your soul through the it's, computer screen. It's upsetting. Yeah, and and I would definitely not want to encounter a, a human sized hydra. That's no. for sure. Um, Mammals, we can regenerate a little bit, like deer, they can regrow their antlers, right? And sometimes humans can regenerate internal organs like the liver, but we mainly we don't regenerate. And the reason why is because our wounds are sealed off with thickened mats of collagen. The scars ward off infection, but they make it really difficult to completely heal because the collagen is severing the nerves and those can't penetrate the barrier to reconnect. So it seems like biology is one of two ways. You either get to scar or you get to regenerate. Now, scars, when you look at your scars, like I've got some scars on my hands and stuff, they're essentially just overgrowth of our normal fibrous scaffolding, the stuff that supports all of our tissues, right? Now, All kinds of lizards can regenerate, but not 
all lizards can. Crocodiles and snakes don't seem to be able to. And in fact, the photo of this uh, SCP uh, rage monster lizard, it's essentially a crocodile. That's what it looks like. But iguanas, geckos, salamanders, larval frogs, and toads, they have all demonstrated the ability to regenerate. In many cases, the regrown limb will separate from the muscles, the blood supply, and the nerves. The bones, they actually regrow not as bones but as cartilaginous tubes. Uh, and so this isn't instantaneous. It can take, for instance, an anole lizard 60 days just to regenerate a functional tail. And the process is stressful because the lizard has to use a lot of energy to do this. It can even lower their social status among other lizards. But the less stress the lizard deals with, the faster the stump will heal. So, you know, wants to go to a little quiet place, you know, be in the dark and just sit there and regenerate, Mm -hmm. you know. Some lizards can only do this once while other lizards can shed and regenerate over and over and over again. Now, interestingly, researchers at Arizona State University in 2014 were able to pinpoint the genes responsible for anole lizard tail regeneration. And of the 23,000 genes, they narrowed it down to 326 that were, quote, turned on during regeneration. While they expected this to be mostly genes that were in the tip where the tail was regrowing, they actually found that cells dividing were all over the lizard, including in its muscle, its cartilage, its spinal cord, and its skin. They also found, get this, of those 326 genes that were responsible for regeneration, nearly all of them are present in us, in human beings as well. Ah. So in theory, we should be able to do the same thing. So they're hoping their research will help find a way to help uh, with birth defects, spinal cord injuries, and possibly arthritis. Now, some of these genes seem to be involved in embryonic development and in wound healing. The genes involved in regeneration all seem to be part of the WNT pathway. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's just Mm -hmm. wound (laughs) It was just produced like that in the literature. That controls stem cells in organs like our brain, our hair follicles, and our blood vessels. So researchers, they've identified a type of cell that's really important for tissue regeneration. That's the satellite cell. Mm -hmm. And these satellite cells are also more common in Nole lizards. So, all right, let's apply this to our reptile monster here. It sounds like as a reptile, it probably has the same ability that many lizards that we've described have, but this is at a more accelerated rate. It probably doesn't scar at all. And based on that 2014 genetic discovery, I would guess maybe this reptile has even more genes that, quote, turn on and allow its cells to divide. And maybe it has more satellite cells, too. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it would need to consume a lot, a lot of energy to keep this up, right? So what is it eating? And it's said in the creepypasta that, you know, it can convert any matter into energy essentially, right? Um, It makes me think of this Legion of Superheroes character called Matter Eater Lad. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe this is a, this is like an evil version of that. Okay. Well, it also reminds me, I think there was another SCP entity that's like a a living thing without any, uh, without an orifice. So they're like, where does its energy come from? Yeah. We talked about that in one of the other ones. Yeah. I believe so. Like there's the idea, well, it must have like an extra dimensional portion of its body that eats in another world or something. Yeah. Well, here I turned to just normal 
digestion and matter conversion to try to figure this out. So a brief primer on simply how we and most other living things digest. We break down food, and I'm putting that in quotes because remember, this thing can eat organic stuff. But we just break them down into smaller substances, and then we extract nutrients from them that gives us energy to develop. So there's three micronutrients for this energy, carbohydrates, proteins, and lipids. We also make use of vitamins and materials. And then through chemical digestion, which is after we've chewed our food and our stomach has churned it all down, there's enzymes in our bodies that break the chemical bonds and change the structure of the molecules involved. In the human mechanical process, that also involves moistening that starts the actual chemical enzyme breakdown, right? Our saliva is sort of the beginning of that process. So, okay, let's turn back to this lizard monster SCP-962. It seems that this reptile's digestion is aided by turning substance into a liquid. Remember it mentioned that it breathes in liquid Mm -hmm. and then it like takes in the substances through gills? Uh, that then distribute the micronutrients around to be converted into energy. So what I'm wondering, does it chew stuff up and then vomit it back up and then snort it down through its gills? <laughs> Somehow it's turning – like if it's eating rocks, right? it's turning those rocks into a liquid somehow and then it's – bringing the liquid in through the gills in its nose. It's quite confusing. Huh. Or maybe there's just a little hole in between its mouth and its nostrils and that the liquid co- goes up and filters in through the gills that way. Well, I mean, it's certainly not that far removed from some of the, the feeding practices of, of uh, insects. I mean, the, the, right. the famous one being, of course, the fly. And then the other thing here is how powerful must the acidic enzymes in its digestive system be that allow it to break down anything, right? And that makes me think, they keep talking about in this creepypasta, oh, hydrochloric acid is the only way we can deal with this thing. And I'm thinking, well, maybe the hydrochloric acid is breaking down its external body parts on the outside, but it's probably got some kind of acidic shielding inside its stomach and digestive system. Yeah, I mean, much like humans do. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. so this thing, classic example of you just combine uh, reptile regeneration and you kind of accelerate it to a fantastic levels, and then you consider just how digestion works, which is pretty fantastic when you think about it. Yeah. So, okay, we've hit three of them, three creepypastas. Let's take one more break. We'll come back and we'll get our last one in. All right, we're back. So the final creepypasta for this episode is one known as The Grifter. And I, I want to just give everyone a heads up here. In this particular uh, portion of the podcast, uh, we're going to get into, I mean, we're, we're a pretty PG show, but this one is going to involve snuff films a little bit. So if you need to check out at this point, uh, we respect that. And if you want to come back in when you're, uh, when the listening audience is more appropriate, uh, you may do that as well. Okay. All right. So I, I keep, I kept coming back to this one though, because there's something kind of pure about it, you know, something something uncut. Uh, the versions of the grifter that I kept coming across, they don't even have the embellishments of character or story. It's simply this idea that, hey, there's a video out there called The Grifter, and it's sort of a supercut of disturbing images that contain, uh, you know, actual footage of child deaths and creepy puppets, okay. which seems like an odd juxtaposition because on one hand, child deaths are horrible and yeah. they should not be filmed and if they are filmed and that's in, it probably suspect there's there was almost certainly a crime committed here yeah right and creepy but on the other hand creepy puppets are just creepy puppets that are just good wholesome fun 
Uh, so I don't see why I should react to the creepy puppet in the same way I'm reacting to a film. Just yeah. sounds like a like a video goulash. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to ch- sort of overwhelm your senses. But this was definitely a theme for a while. It still is, right? I mean, Ring and yeah. Ringu obviously kicked it off. The Videodrome transmission. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, there's a lot of literary fiction that I've read lately that's kind of like meta horror analysis. In fact, Joe Hill has one that's like this. Yeah. About like watching horror movies. I actually read this book by Gemma Files recently called experimental film it's very similar whole kind of thing is just like there are these haunted things that you're watching right yeah yeah it's um it, it's really interesting because it it seems to emerge the grifter in particular seems to emerge from two areas here so the endearing urban myth of the snuff film and of course the ever widening realm of recorded human experience just the fact that there are there there are films of human deaths there there is footage of human death out there on the internet and you don't even really have to look that hard to find it no hell no i mean when we were growing up even before there was really an internet uh, faces of death was circulating all over the place and and i'll get to faces yeah i saw faces of death when i was oh god way too young i think like 14 or 15 (laughs) years old i don't think i ever saw them but i remember i remember the the vhs tapes which was enough you know just to see the tapes and maybe if i got brave you know pick it up and read the back of it yeah now but before we get into either of these areas, though, it's, of course, worth remembering that footage of human deaths, not only do they exist, but they've they've been with us for quite a while. Um, among the older examples, you'll find botched performances, most famously Friends, uh, Richelt's 1912 uh, failed Eiffel Tower parachute jump. Mm. Uh, and, and that's out there on YouTube as well. But, you know, basically he was going to test out this parachute apparatus. It didn't work. He died. And there's film and footage of it. Right. For non-human animals, we have Thomas Edison's 1903 filmed electrocution of uh, Topsy the Elephant. Oh, man. You guys have talked about this on the show before. Didn't you do like a whole episode on? So. Yeah. Uh, J- Joe and Robert have another episode that's all about like electricity and religiosity. But man, Thomas Edison did some really awful stuff uh, basically to try to like promote his brand of electricity, including electrocuting human beings. Yeah, uh, I mean, but as far as just Topsy goes, even though it's not a human, like that's yeah. it's a pretty, it's it's a pretty dark that's moment in awful. film history. Yeah. Now, if you follow all of this up though with numerous assassinations, footage of war and violence, various performance or sport sports based fatalities, you end up having just quite a well of uh, of a filmed death. And then of course we eventually see filmed murders and suicides that also occur outside the confines of war. Yeah. So as, as cameras grow more and more ubiquitous, the act of capturing life means inevitably capturing death as well. And I just mentioned recently on the optography episode, I've got a whole book full of photos from the 19th century of dead bodies. Mm-hmm. That was because there was this fascination at the time with that would be kind of the best way to remember the person they thought, right? It's mm-hmm. like right before they were buried, they would get, get them very well dressed up the corpse and take a photo that the family would keep. You know? Yeah. Now, in all of this, Okay, so we know the footage is out there. Yeah. Like some of it's on YouTube, especially with these historic uh, bits of footage. Yeah. Uh, other stuff is more buried away in darker portions of the, the web. But there is something creepy about just knowing that it's out there, that all of this stuff on the Internet is out there, and it's just a, a few keystrokes away if you are willing to glance in its direction, right? Mm. Now, in all of these cases, though, we are talking about you know about footage footage of something that happened or in in some cases some of the viler examples yes it's somebody perpetrating a crime and filming it 
but they are not exactly snuff films. It's the, they're, they're not examples of film that contains an actual murder committed as an intentional part of the production for profit. It's not uh, a, a murder stage for commercial purposes, which is uh, a terrifying and yet somehow believable idea, and it's tied directly to this urban legend of the snuff film. So what this makes me think of immediately is... 9-11. So when 9-11 happened, we've all heard the stories about how there were some victims who had to jump off of the building, right? Oh, yeah. Right? The, the Just, jumper is a, a famous uh, a famous photograph of the individual uh, jumping out of the tower. Exactly. Now, a lot of that footage did not show up in American media, especially after 9-11 happened, right? Mm-hmm. We, our media was definitely sanitized at that time. That's a whole other episode. But I was actually in Eastern Europe a couple of years after that, and I was in uh, Krakow in Poland, and there was a gallery, and it was all photos from 9-11, including that one, you know, and they had blown it up. And it basically the, the gallery was sort of challenging you to look at this moment of horror and real death, but confront it in a way that American news media wasn't willing to. Oh, yeah. I mean – there are times I, when the, a photograph or film footage of actual human death has certainly been a, a, a poignant, um, you know, capture of mm-hmm. of what it means to live in our modern world. I mean, yeah. I could we could sit here and list the various, you know, assassinations or uh, I mean, a lot of them, I guess, are targeted political assassinations, the political murders. Big one is the Vietnam footage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, more recently, there was the it was the, the the Russian ambassador to Turkey. Is that correct? Mm. It was uh, shot in the gallery, and there was a journalist there and captured the whole thing. And they oh. were they were powerful, award winning photographs yeah. of this this crime taking place. Mm-hmm. But again, very different from they're not snuff, snuff films, films. Right. yeah they're not designed to uh entice you so let me let's get into this idea of the snuff film real quick this is probably the only chance on the show we have to talk about about the the, the really interesting history of them and again yeah. we're we're not going to get into explicit details of things here but the term itself emerged in the 1970s uh, in fact, 1971, an allegation was made in Ed Sanders' uh, book, The Family, the story of Charles Manson's dune buggy attack battalion. That's the actual title. Uh, and he charged that the family was involved in making films of this nature. He called them the, the Charles Manson family. Right. Yeah. yeah. He, he charged that they were making, quote unquote, brutality films. And he later referred to these and coined the term snuff films. Okay. Now. All he had to go on here, though, was a secondhand rumor that he even he himself eventually uh, refuted. But it was a it was a fact that the family had stolen an NBC TV truck in the summer of 69 and kept one of the cameras around. But the film was all recovered. And Sanders himself later admitted that no footage of murders or of just of dead bodies ever materialized. But the idea was out there and uh, and the rise of adult cinema with actual scenes of sexual activity and horror cinema with an increasingly violent and bloody focus. This seemed to make it all the more possible. Right. Like, what are these filmmakers going to do next? Yeah. And then we had one particular film that came along to just sort of push this to the next level. And that was the 1976 film Snuff uh, that was promoted uh, and uh, you know put out there as if it were an actual snuff film. So the the taglines for this one are, and you can look up the posters, the picture they said could never be shown. The bloodiest thing that has ever happened in front of a camera. 
The film that could only be made in South America, where life is cheap. We just sort of redid this again recently with uh, that, and you and I are not fans, but <laughs> Eli Roth's Green Inferno, which came out like oh, two yeah, years yeah. ago. It wasn't. They didn't mark it as like this really happened, but there was sort of a like. This could have really happened because we were filming actual tribes in South America that have never been filmed before. And who knows what they're up to, right? Like, yeah, well, he was specifically playing with the legacy of uh, Cannibal Holocaust, yeah. which is a film that came out after Snuff that was all that also had this vibe of, is it real? Uh, is it is this a Snuff film? Are these real dead bodies or real murders? And, yeah. and, and, and it ended up being investigated. And, of course, there was no there's there's no uh, uh, fact. It's just any a gross movie. Yeah. Yeah. But but snuff is is interesting because in reality it was a combination of unreleased 1970 footage. This uh, movie called Slaughter, that was uh, actually the work of Michael and Roberta Findlay. I don't know if you remember them, but they're mm-hmm. a husband and wife exploitation duo that also gave us the 1974 film Shriek of the Mutilated, which is essentially a Bigfoot film that we talked about on Trailer Talk. I don't think I was there that oh, week maybe when that you guys did the Bigfoots. Yeah. yeah, okay. So it's the same couple. Uh, the, their film, the, the film quality and the quality of the acting and production tends to be rather low in yeah. their work. Yeah, but, really? <laughs> yeah, but 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 they're. I think they were deceptively bright. Yeah, uh, at least in a, from a marketing standpoint, and I think even to a limited extent from a storytelling standpoint, in Shriek of the Mutilate it has a fa- fabulous twist. But Slaughter, just this movie dealt with a Manson-inspired cult, had scenes of bloody death. And then when they repackaged it, they just added an end uh, ending to it in which uh, the woman seems to be murdered by the film crew. So yeah. it's kind of like a holy mountain moment where they break the fourth wall. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this was this isn't a movie at all. And the, the filmmakers are the real murderers here. So this yeah, like one of the things that I like about 70s horror cinema is that it was trying new things in ways that like a lot of other decades of horror cinema seem to have been a little bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. But this was one of them, right? It yeah. was like the uh, filmmakers were trying to see how far they could push the envelope and how that affected the audience, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think the best example, one that both you and I love is Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. which is clearly not real, right? But mm-hmm. it's filmed in that 1970s way. I wish there was like a way to encapsulate this with like the style of actual film that it shot on and how the audio is recorded. But it's so organic and yeah. analog and raw. It, it has almost kind of a documentary vibe to it. Yeah. 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 And it came along at just the right time and in the wake of uh, or in the same time period as some of these uh, these films that we're discussing here. Absolutely. Now, when Snuff came out, uh, it was almost immediately uh, – out as a, as a hoax, both uh, that year in Variety magazine and also due to an LAPD investigation. It just simply doesn't hold up to close scrutiny. Yeah, you, you watch it and you realize, yeah, this is fake blood. This is this is a horror movie and not a particularly good one. Mm. Uh, but the reputation stuck with Snuff for a long time. And uh, as argued by uh, Ethene Johnson and Eric Schaefer, uh, in uh, their piece, Softcore Hardcore Snuff is a Crisis in Meaning, which came out uh, in 1993 uh, in the Journal of Film and Video, they said that this uh, part of this film's success was that there was just a lot of genre confusion. It was hard to classify it as anything else because it wasn't really that explicit, not as explicit as other horror movies that were coming out at that time. It certainly wasn't pornographic, so it didn't have that uh, sheen to it. Uh, but uh, it... it it just confused people. And then there was this idea that it was real. Mm. Um, 
which I think is one of the elements with a lot of footage of actual violence and actual death is the disconnect between what these acts look like in reality versus what they look like in cinematic portrayals. Yeah. So in yeah. a way, by if you're not that great of a filmmaker, you don't have a great effects team, you're able to perhaps hit that area of uncertainty where people are like, oh, my goodness, that really didn't look like a shooting. Right. Maybe that was a shooting because real shootings don't yeah. look like movie shootings. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point, too. And maybe why the 70s was such a like culmination of this kind of stuff. But also just that like we were getting into a phase where effects were getting better. Film quality was getting better. And then obviously like the production of such kind of things was was going into like bigger studio uh, investments, right? Yeah. So all the more money that was put into it made it look less real. Yeah, but of course it was it was all it was all production. This also makes me think I'm obsessed with this show right now, Mindhunter, which is on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, this is the yeah the, the serial killer show. From- yeah, it's all about how the FBI is tr- in the early 70s is trying to figure out how to come up with. Uh, like a working behavioral science understanding of serial. And that period of time was also like that, right? Like all of this stuff and Manson is mentioned right in the first episode of that, where they're just trying to understand these horrific psychopathic acts, right? And they can't wrap their heads around it because they don't have a language to you. Yeah. And I think pop culture was trying to do it in this way while maybe the FBI was trying to do it in their own way, you know? And it's interesting. One of the things that's interesting about watching Mindhunter is now from our perspective of like 40 plus years of police procedurals where we all sort of know the nomenclature of serial killers Mm -hmm. that like when you're watching it, you're like, Oh yeah, it's so obvious, but they don't quite get it yet because they're, they're literally unfamiliar with any of this. Yeah. It was a new day and what was happening seemed to be defying uh, typical patterns, typical uh, classifications. And you saw that in reality and you saw it in art as well. Yeah. Now, this of course leads to just this legacy of the idea. Oh, there's snuff films somewhere out there. Someone's making snuff films. Right. But, it's important to note that there there are no true snuff films. There are no films in which someone is intentionally murdered as part of a commercial exercise. There, And this has been investigated by journalists. This has been investigated by law enforcement uh, agencies. I believe it was investigated by Nicolas Cage in that movie, Eight oh, Millimeter. Yes, which I remember enjoying back in the day. It has uh, – <laughs> oh, it has – oh, what's his name? The um, – the European actor who played. I've never seen it. Oh God. It's, it's, it's actually tremendously fun because you have, uh, Peter Stormare. Yeah. As, one of my uh, favorites. Yeah. I think he, his name is like something velvet or something. Okay. Uh, and he's the, the, the guy that's making these snuff films and he's, he's just acting over the top. Ugh. And at the, at the end, spoiler for eight millimeter, he, he's shot. And I, I remember this because he's like, oh, I'm, I'm bleeding. I'm dying. It's not supposed to happen like this. I wanted something more cinematic. And then he <laughs> says, machine, kill them, kill them all. He's talking to this sort of the, the gimp murder character in the, uh, in the <laughs> We movie. should just have a whole Peter Stormare trailer talk episode. He's he, the best. He's fabulous. Like yeah. that movie Constantine. I've Constantine, forgotten everything except yes. for his uh, Satan He's character. only in it for five minutes, but my wife and I still to this day will quote him as <laughs> Satan in Constantine. Yeah. He's so good. All right. So, uh, so yeah, again, there are no snuff films. People have looked into it. Uh, but 
but that but I think the idea, the reason that that the that, that snuff films or even stuff like the the grifter, the reason it resonates is because we are inclined to glance at the horror, uh, to rubberneck on the highway, and and you know, maybe just clink on some sort of a suspect link. Um, and for some people, it goes further. Uh, there's a 2012 Verge article that explored the topic of gore fans, and and it summarized that such individuals share quote a compulsive curiosity about human nature and frailty, and a firm belief that the mainstream media does a disservice by censoring, quote, what's really going on. Yeah. And uh, and I think there's some truth to that, because for the most part, we are removed from the physical reality of death. We do that through the way that we treat the dead and how we compartmentalize them within the, the, the funeral industry. Yeah, yeah. And like we said earlier, death in film and TV is not uh, necessarily uh, something that's going to line up with the real experience of murder and violence and death. Man, I know I know we don't really have the opportunity to do this, but I kind of want to do like a whole podcast, not just an episode, like a podcast series all about what we've talked about with just this last creepypasta. Because I think there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Like humans, uh, both uncomfortability and fascination with visions of death. It's undeniable. All right. So there you have it. A fourth creepypasta is now uh, in the books. It's boxed up. Ready for the vault, and uh, and hopefully it'll help everyone out there, uh, you know, cap off their uh, their Halloween seasonal listening as well. Yeah, and in fact, I think this is going to publish actually right after Halloween, so we're giving you a special treat. Here. Yeah, we went we went one over. Well, it's still Halloween we week. Help ourselves. It's, I feel yeah. like that week between <laughs> uh, you know that encompasses Halloween and yeah. All Saints Day. It's still Halloween. Keep well, your, you keep your uh, Thanksgiving weeks uh, weeks out for me. What is it? Uh, Walpurgis not? That's in uh, uh, May, actually. But, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's the Witches Week. Yeah. Anyways, hey, all of those other Creepypasta episodes that we've been mentioning throughout this, if you liked this one, you'll probably like those two. Creepypasta 1, 2, and 3, they're all on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. They will be in the show notes for this episode. But, hey, visit the website. Everything's on there that we've been talking about this episode. The podcasts that we've done, uh, all those videos, including the horsehair video we talked about. Mm-hmm. And then... Also, Robert's blog posts, which are the hidden gem secrets of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. If you're a real Stuff to Blow Your Mind fan, you're going to want to check those out. And if you just want to get in touch with us directly, if you want to chat with us about creepypastas, recommend creepypastas, or you know, your, give your thoughts on some of the movies we've mentioned here, you can simply email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.